Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we start this week's show, we want to let all of you listeners know that Book Riot has announced our favorite books of the year. And on top of that, we are giving away our top 20 of 2017. You can check out a few of the selections in the giveaway post. The giveaway entries are open through January 14th, but don't wait. Go sign up now. Go to bookriot.com slash bookriottop20 to enter. You'll be entering again to win 20 of Book Riot's favorite reads of 2017. That's bookriot.com slash bookriottop20. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 240, we're recording on Thursday, December 14th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. It's a, it's a look back this week. I know, I can't believe we're already looking back. The like This end of the year time has really snuck up on me. I was um, trying to think of the stories from the year, and as it always happens, I think happens every year. I'm like, hey, you know, I can't. Nothing really sticks out. And then once I saw the the stories starting to piling up in the um, <laughs> agenda, I was like, oh my gosh, it is a nuts yeah, year. Yeah, um, I had a really fun time yesterday. I I had like 900 tabs open, scrolling mm-hmm. backwards through our agenda from the last year, and opening stories and being like, do we care enough about this one? Do we care enough about this other mm-hmm. one? Uh, but I think this is a pretty good summary of of what happened here in 2017. Yeah, a lot of turkeys. It's many. like Thanksgiving. Yeah, there are so many turkeys. And I'm not in the mood to pardon any of them. No. I guess um, sometimes we've, we started this with kind of an overview, like where, where the state of the union mm. uh, of the book world right now. On the top level trend stuff, I feel like not, I, I guess that's what I was thinking, is like not much really changed this year. We didn't get a lot of big movers and shakers, like print sales are pretty steady, Amazon sales are pretty steady. Um, we didn't have a huge book this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have our own personal favorites, but I don't think we'd call them like earth-shattering, like breakout stars. I guess The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, yeah, if any yeah. one of them applies, that one would. I think really next year might be the year of The Hate You Give because the movie's going to come out, and that will break into the mainstream, I think, in a larger way next year. Um But yeah, we didn't see, you know, uh, Amazon didn't do anything too nuts. We didn't see the publishers try anything that interesting. Like if you look at our, uh, as you'll hear our stories that we picked them in, there's not much that come from traditional publishing that were like, yay, this was really interesting or cool. There just weren't like a ton of innovations Mm -hmm. this year. And I agree. There also wasn't a big trend in publishing. One theme that I noticed as I was scrolling back through a year's worth of show agendas is we had a bunch of like Barnes and Noble continues to struggle. Now they're going to try this kinds of kinds of stories every month or so that happened. Of course, ebook pricing is still stupid. Um, but that, that was not a new development in 2017. We just talked about it more this year probably than ever before, but yeah, no, there were no big changes. You know, we had, Several years back, we had the years where everyone was afraid of what ebooks were going mm-hmm. to do to the market. And then there was the like rebound of print and the like, okay, maybe digital isn't going to ruin everything. And there was some experimentation, a bunch of new apps. Like it, there was that one year, I think it was maybe 2014, that we got Oyster and Scribd at the same time with right, sort of yeah. all, all you can eat. Um, subscription experiences. And there just wasn't a whole lot. Like many things happened, but it wasn't a terribly interesting year in publishing. And I think it was a good but not excellent year in books. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that um, one, I, 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 I hesitate to use the term fake, but like misreported mm. or miscontextualized bit of news that we kept seeing popping up again and again this year is how the resurgence of print, right? In fact, right. I think I retweeted a thing from Jane Friedman where she wrote a post like, that. that's, that's only if you forget about um, digital lending at libraries and Amazon. And like, I, I think that's a dan- dangerous, I don't think it's dangerous. I think for people who want to see print flourish, mm-hmm. looking at the numbers this year for print and saying, this is it, is not going to lead you to the promised land. Like right. that, the, the, it's not the strength of print 
that led to print gaining market share from paid uh, digital books especially, and the flattening out of the share of the market that is paid top five reported through BookScan, you hear all the caveats already, mm-hmm. numbers is not a place where you be like, you know what, I'm all set here. We don't, to, you know, Everyone go back to their work and we can go um, pump out some more midlist novels and sell them for twenty eight ninety nine at all these new independent bookstores. Like, I don't think that's going to take you where you want to be. I think that number, the more interesting piece of that number is all the numbers that we don't see that contributes to it. And one of those that I think we didn't get one big story about this, but it was a trickle of stories about audiobooks, the the beast that audiobooks are becoming and how people are selling a lot of them. They're getting sold through a lot of different channels. Libro.fm, a new, you know, a new company that's trying to sell them again through independent bookstores. We're seeing a lot of deals, big dollars. You know, that, that giant release for Andy Weir's Artemis that was about the audiobooks with Rosaria Daw- Dawson. And like, audiobooks were a big deal this year. And we still have very bad data um, about audiobook sales because Amazon is the I mean, you think Amazon is dominant in book sales? Uh, let me tell you about a little company called Audible, mm-hmm. right? Um, a little underreport. Well, it's not underreported. I think anyone who pays attention to it knows, but like, there's a lot of people don't know a how dominant Audible really is, and that it's an Amazon, wholly owned Amazon subsidiary. So, I think there are some there are some tectonic plate movements going on in 2017, but we didn't have any sort of eruptions, uh, if that makes sense. You can feel those things happening, but they, they didn't um, create giant fissures or, or um, uh, yeah, abysses. I think that's right. There were shifts, but there weren't made like they were transitional kinds of movements, but there weren't actual transitions, mm-hmm. um, shifts, but not paradigm shifts. It's really been. It's been like a, it's been a year. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much like another year passed. I'm getting old and it's going fast. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, yeah. We should uh, um, do our first sponsor and then we'll get into our highlight reel. Let's do it. Uh, this is Breathing Books is back again. If you're planning to gift books to friends and family this holiday season, cons- uh, consider Cornelia Funka's Reckless, The Petrified Flesh, the first book in her fantasy series putting a dark twist on classic fairy tales. It follows talented treasure hunter Jacob Reckless and his shape-shifting companion, 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 Fox through their adventures in a magic-filled pre-industrial revolution-era world. Great for readers who love a rich young adult or new adult fantasy. Brings all of Funka's lush world-building skill to a new fantasy series, ideal for the now-grown readers of her earlier stories. So if this is an author you know, you know, interesting to grow up a little bit with author. Um, she's also the author of popular middle grade book uh, Inkheart, as well as The Wild Chicks, which Breathing Books will begin publishing in the U.S. in the spring of 2018. It's out now. Uh, Reckless, the Petrified Fresh Flesh is out now from Breathing Books, available Amazon. Um, but you can go to your local independent bookstore. Breathing Books wants to encourage you to go to your local independent bookstore to get a copy. So they're there as well. Thanks to Breathing Books for sponsoring this uh, episode of the show. And there are past couple of sponsorships. They're going to sponsor this for us this fall. Appreciate that. Yeah, and you can check out breathing-books.com for more info on that. Yeah, look at you pick me, look at you pick me up on screwing up the, the for, forgetting that part of the read. I appreciate that. Well, <laughs> I got you. This is a team effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I didn't put these our highlight reel in any kind of yeah. order. There's no system. So you want to let's just we'll jump around. Let's yeah, we can jump around. We can crisscross it all the lo- live long day. Um, uh, let's see. I don't know. You know, interestingly, speaking of tectonic shift things, um, we got the. In the in the physical retail world, mm-hmm. we got a couple of tremors. Um, I'd say we put um, well, let's put them together. Barnes and Noble's new concept store, BN Kitchen, um, and Indigo, the Canadian bookstore, making plans to open at least five North American stores. Um, that's a big deal. I, I mean, that's one of those things where they, that I think that or that could be a big deal. Mm-hmm. The potential to be a big deal. I'd certainly think. I think you would agree with me, tell me if I'm wrong, that Indigo coming into the U.S. and testing the waters here is much more interesting than this BN Kitchen situation. Oh, yes, 100% I agree with Mm -hmm. that characterization. And the notes I have in the agenda are, like, most exciting news for people who love physical bookstores is that Indigo plans to enter the U.S. market. And then it's the thing we had the most fun slagging is this new (laughs) Barnes & Noble concept store. Uh, And I think that distinction kind of tells you everything that you need to know Mm -hmm. about this. It was especially interesting, I think, that uh, these pieces of news came out 
out kind of hot on each other's heels um, that and we got super excited about indigo coming in because the Canadians really seem to love indigo it's a beautiful kind of lifestyle department store is the way that we've been talking about it and the the way that we've heard it described um, where you can get books you can get other things for your life but the shopping experience seems very pleasant not a sort of not that Barnes and Noble is slapdash but like it's it doesn't feel nearly as uh luxurious to go mm-hmm. in a Barnes and Noble and pick up a game and pick up a book these indigo stores look gorgeous and we heard from so many Canadian listeners who just so wanted many. to sing the praises of indigo um I will look forward to hopefully being able to take a field trip I hope there's one that will be in a convenient location uh to a travel experience yeah. or something so I can check one out but it's every time i open this link that we'll have in the show notes to the publisher's weekly piece just seeing like a little peek of an indigo Mm -hmm. store is like oh yeah i do want to wander around in there pick books up off of shelves and you know the barnes and noble kitchen situation which we had that very lovely detailed report from a listener sarah good job sarah Sarah in Texas, you still need to email me. I wasn't joking. I want to send you a T-shirt. She may have. I haven't checked the email in a few days. Maybe she. Maybe she got to us. That may not be your problem, Sarah. All right. I'm guessing th- uh, thoroughness is not Sarah's problem. I'm just putting it out. There she, <laughs> right. She, Podcast yeah. at bookriot.com. Let us reward mm-hmm. you for being our uh, kitchen gumshoe. But it just, you know, it, I don't. I'm not. Well, we've been over it. This is the thing mm-hmm. we had a lot of fun slagging because who really wants to go to like an Applebee's in a Barnes and Noble? You know, this reminds me, um, in talking about these two stories, of a, a, story, a story notable for maybe its absence on our agenda is the Amazon bookstores. Oh, yeah. Which started opening, I believe, last year, but there, were, there was a handful of new ones that came out this year. And we'd sort of been on the precipice, it felt like, of like, now there's going to be 100 new ones, right? Because there was one in New York, and then I went to the one for Annotated Sharif, and I went out to this one in Portland. And it just kind of... I don't think it's a nothing burger, but it's also not a world changer. Like maybe it's a nice thing for Amazon to do, but I guess I was wondering or expecting or waiting for the moment where Amazon said, you know, these things worked really great and we're going to open 200 of them next year. No, I mean, seriously, right? That's kind of what we were waiting for. And we were speculating when they were announcing that they were going to open, like, what is the big gambit with Mm -hmm. these stores? What are they trying to do? And if it's successful, then we uh, we assumed there would be a whole bunch of them. And it, right, that story just didn't really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. They didn't say it was great. They were opening 200. It also wasn't a flop. Like they're open. People are shopping in them. I hear from people just in my, you know, from civilians, like from right. from non-book folks about going into Amazon stores periodically and that, you know, it's bestsellers, that the books are all faced out. It's easy to find something to read. And I think that analogy that you and Sharifa came up with of the Amazon bookstore feeling like a bigger, nicer airport bookstore mm-hmm. um, seemed to to work for those folks. So that's, that's totally fine. I think you're right. It just wasn't, a, it wasn't really a thing um, where Intego has the potential to be a big thing. Um, And then Barnes & Noble, sort of going in the opposite direction. The more that I think about the contrast between those two stories, um, those companies' understandings of the experience that readers want to have when they shop, like the Barnes & Noble kitchen seems to be going for almost a convenience. Like, look, you could have dinner and buy books in the same place. Mm -hmm. And Indigo seems to be more about a, you know, luxury experience, for lack of a better term. The books aren't a million dollars or like plated in gold, but you to feel a little fancier when you're mm-hmm. having that. Um, and those seem to be designed for different kinds of customers. Um, so it's interesting to think about, you know, if you sat somebody down today and were like, design a bookstore that a reader will love going to, um, what, how you get to the Barnes & Noble kitchen answer versus how you get to the Indigo answer um, is pretty yeah. fascinating. And, and I guess that does go back to the question I think we posited when, when Sharifa and I were to work on the annotated thing is like, what readers are these stores for the Amazon books one? Therefore, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't at all, and I hope no one took it as the a, a very good, the best possible version of an airport bookstore. That is not an insult from me. I, no. I don't mean that as an insult at all. That's a very useful way of thinking about it. Um, you think about why an airport bookstore is there. It's there for people who maybe didn't come prepared with the book. That's someone that's different than someone who I would think shops an independent bookstore exclusively, right? They, mm-hmm. They've tra- they've planned their <laughs> they had their list, reading they have their stack. Yeah, yeah, it's they're a whole ritual. What percentage of their 
bag is going to have books in it, you know, and the, the incidental, the casual, the, oh, yeah, books. I had to go take a look at it and see what the thing that I've heard of and um, pick it up right there. It's a different sort of situation where Indigo, then on the other extreme, is like a lifestyle, like reading is part of your life. It's, right. it's a part of your identity, something else like that. And this Barnes & Noble kitchen situation is, is the kitchen the, is the, kitchen the draw or yeah. is the bookstore the draw? Right, and I think like... the answer, though, it, the answer to that is no. Right. Like, neither, <laughs> neither in that situation is built to be the main draw. And so they're trying to they're trying to make you know a dollar out of three quarters, and I just don't think. Yeah, it it's but kind of anyway. a like, well, everybody has to eat, so maybe we can get the people yeah, who right. have to eat, and some of them will decide to read mm-hmm. too. It's just a it's a weird choice to make. Um, yeah. But that was yeah that w- was an interesting con like compare contrast I think in the world of um, bricks and mortar book selling, which is not dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, not dead. It's not dead. It's not dead at all. Um, just different and. The, the the sort of um, detente we've come to with Barnes & Noble thrashing against Amazon mostly and independent bookstores crawling back and having some success and new stores opening and not being a disaster, what's the next stage I think is where we are? Um, and we've gotten the, a couple of salvos you know, between Amazon Books and BN Kitchen and Indigo. You can see that there's some room in the ecosystem. People or These companies feel like there's some room in the ecosystem to try some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far... I, so far, I don't think we're raving about any of this stuff yet. Um, yeah, we're not. So, you know, speaking right. of you uh, airport, speaking of airport bookstores, uh-huh. <laughs> um, this was the kind of a big, a thing that had the potential to become a big thing, but that did not become a big mm. thing. I have it as the reader's rights story that didn't actually become a thing. Um, back in the summer, we were getting reports that the TSA was testing safety procedures in a few airports, including uh, the Kansas City airport that we are both probably more familiar with than we would like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the other one was LAX, um, asking people to remove books and magazines from their bags and put them in security bins to be x-rayed in an attempt to declutter people's carry-on bags because since checking luggage has become so expensive, more people are trying to pack more stuff into their carry-on bags and the densely packed bags are difficult for x-ray machines to decipher. Like I have experienced this firsthand. If I pack my backpack on a flight and I have like a travel yoga mat folded up in there and a bunch of books, I often get the secondary screening where they have to, you know, open it up and peek inside. But folks were not happy about no. being asked to remove their reading material and make it, you know, functionally on display for screening. The ACLU got involved. Roxanne Gay wrote a little piece or maybe tweeted about it. I can't remember which, but this happened to her when she was traveling that they had asked her to remove books from her bag. There was a big hubbub for like a week. And then the TSA was like, oh, right. Privacy is a thing that people are concerned about, Mm -hmm. especially when a government agency might be looking at their things. And there's already so much that's fraught about airport screening. Someone said, you know, what would happen if I had the Quran in my bag? Um, Is that going to make me get profiled as a terrorist. Those kinds of of questions were raised. So not just about privacy, but also about safety, um, about profiling and um, the sort of various ways that our privacy has been intruded on and can be intruded on by um, security screeners. So I'm relieved that this was not not a bigger thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But like it it was a story, then it wasn't a story because the TSA was just like, oh, yeah, no, never mind. We don't (laughs) want to get involved. Like we don't want the ACLU to sue us today. Let's just not do that. No. No. Yeah, it didn't go anywhere. I think one of those things where maybe the outcry did actually um, do the thing that we hope outcry does. Um, Also a stupid idea to worry about books, but that's a different, I guess, just, you know, right there. I mean, books are dense. Maybe they're hard to see through in x-ray things. I don't I don't know, but it's easy to, Mm -hmm. this is one of those stories that reminds me that um, people for whom books are not a priority don't consider or maybe even aren't aware of what books really mean to people who do love books. You know, that like, this isn't just uh, the, it's not just the thing I casually like picked up that I might leaf through to occupy myself on a flight. Like books mean things to us and they're very close to our identities and to our personal ideas and beliefs and they are inherently political. Mm-hmm. Um, so being asked to just reveal what you're reading um, for purposes of security, like I'm doing scare quotes around security. <laughs> <laughs> security theater, you mean? <laughs> yes, security theater, exactly. Um, is uh, is really 
can be a serious issue. And you can see how like a boardroom full of people at the TSA didn't quite realize that until there was an outcry. So I think good job readers on, mm-hmm. you know, making noise about this. Um, biggest licensing game changer. And I think this is also the thin end of the wedge, thin end of the wedge to another big story of the year that was, it was and wasn't a book related story, but, um, it has been the year of the literary adaptation. Indeed the it has. Adaptation. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know that maybe this will be the biggest one of these that we've seen so far, but you put in, um, Tolkien's son resigns as director of the state. Christopher Tolkien mm-hmm. resigned as director of the Tolkien estate that came part and parcel with Amazon's mind-blowing $200 million <sighs> licensing agreement with the Tolkien estate to license basically the Tolkien franchise, intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Probably they've got every nook and cranny and all the Hobbit toe jam they could ever want every to Every nook about. of the uh, Shire. Did you just yeah, say every, Hobbit toe jam? <laughs> I, I possibly did. Showtime. Um, so anyway, like that. that is, you know, you always wonder, like, is that the what's the top of a bubble, right? Is mm-hmm. when people, you know, like Bitcoin. Are we in a Bitcoin situation with literary adaptations where people are paying exorbitant amounts? I don't know exactly. I think it's interesting that we also saw today come across that Disney bought Fox. Yes, um, and, just this you know, morning. There's a bunch of IP that goes along with that. Um, and, you know, collect this. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. These kinds of IP situations, you can't just go out and get Middle Earth. You know, they're, you just, they're just not laying around. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, X-Men, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, whatever. These things just don't lie around. There's not that many of them. So if you have an opportunity to get them, get one, I don't know you're going to go broke. Now, licensing this thing rather than paying, you know, I, I get, what was it that Disney paid for Star Wars? $7 billion mm-hmm. seems like a lot. It, it, of course, it's a lot of money. But relative to the value, I think that's a pretty good deal on the whole. And I think if Amazon had the money or had the interest of the Tolkien estate, they should have bought the whole thing. By all Middle Earth. Yep. Just take the whole franchise. And there's not that many out there. There's not many remaining. I mean, we've got basically the Harry Potter franchise, which is licensed to Universal and some other things, but J.K. herself controls it. Um, you know, someday that's going to be part of Universal. It's going to be part of Universal's company, or it's, it looks like it's... I mean, Disney is now eating everything, but that's one thing there. But then we had giant, well-received um, literary adaptations beyond this. I mean, I guess... Mm-hmm. The Handmaid's Tale is probably the, the flag, the, the standard the year, bearer for the yeah. year, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it seems that way. But I'm um, curious. I was thinking about, like, next week we're going to do our variety show that's mostly yeah. about our favorite non-book things of the year. But we are going to talk about origin. Um, yes. We'll, and we'll probably talk about some adaptations if I am successful. TV, movies, Yeah, whatever. in yeah. watching Our Souls at Night, like, in the next 24 hours before we record <laughs> that show. Oh, yeah, recording tomorrow. <laughs> um, but if you would let us know what your favorite... Um, Oh, yeah. literary adaptations of the year are I would be so interested and I'm sure that mm-hmm. there are some that didn't even that we're not even aware of so shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com and let us know and we can talk about those probably in early 2018 we'll do a little highlight a literal highlight reel of, right. or not quite literal but uh, the highlight reel of reels I don't, save me Jeff um, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll do we'll do the highlights um, I think let's see the other big ones this year American Gods Alias Grace was a big one this year as well which I haven't watched um, Game of Thrones continues its its TV dominance. It's winding down towards end. I mean, we got the news about. We haven't heard a whisper about these prequel spin off Game of Thrones series. Oh you know, right! At one yeah. point, we heard that there could be five of them, um, and then we're told, "Well, these are all in development." This is what happens all the time. Maybe one of them will get made. Um, next year, we see Good Omens. We'll see Good Omens come out, which should be a big deal. I think that make a really fun adaptation as well. See, there's something. I'm just gonna say, there's something else that's coming. There's another American Gods coming out next year. Um, you know, it Stephen King's it. Oh was yeah, a big that was fall. Well, Stephen movie. King had like three movies out on the same day this year, or the same week. I, I think. I, you, you think you can't? Re, you think there's no nothing else to adapt? But then you you realize you can just remake stuff. Right. You know, re, you can remake it. It's already been made. Um, that Tim Curry clown picture from the original one still is not an okay thing for me to think <laughs> about. I never even saw the movie, but um, so that that's. I don't know. I don't know when we'll be able, if we'll be able to call a top to the adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're definitely uh, in market. a bubble. Yeah, and I guess it's once the, um, you know, once these giant platforms are no longer warring with each other for basically set top streaming dominance, like mm-hmm. once HBO, Apple, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, you know, and that does that doesn't seem like a bubble. Like the fight for your TV doesn't oh, seem to be yeah, over anytime no. soon. Um, but it may it may take a different form than 
make these giant tentpole expensive literary adaptations. Yeah, I think um, this year was really like this wasn't the very first step that we saw, but I think we're still in the like left end tail of the curve here mm. that these are kind of, pretty early adopters like Atwood going in for a Hulu series, Neil Gaiman going in for a big adaptation. Um, last year, I think was the start of the magician's adaptation from yeah. Lev Grossman, these sort of big franchise series that now we've seen that it can be done really well. Like the mm -hmm. Hulu adaptation of the handmaid's tale, especially that was a book that I, I remember everybody being like, how is this going to mm -hmm. translate? Like it's going to be really tough to watch that prove to be true. Um, but there's so much about what happens here that like, how do you ground it? And certainly the political climate that we were in after the election was, was part of making the show mm -hmm. really feel threatening and present. But I think these, they stand as, okay, right, if I'm in charge of an estate for some other beloved title or series, like now you've seen Hulu did right by Margaret Atwood. Um, yep. Maybe I will feel more comfortable going in. Like it's, it's those folks that aren't going to be the, or the first adopters, but that needed to watch the first wave happen successfully right. to feel comfortable. Like I, I think we're going to see the doors open for more and more of these. Like we're going to be looking at the end of 2018 and the end of 2019 at even bigger years of adaptation announcements because of how successful this year was. Well, we even talked about it in some of the stories we were covering in the middle to late part of the year of the well-known literary writers getting at, you know, the Marlon Jameses of the world, the mm -hmm. Angela Flournoy's right. of the world, um, N.K. Jemison's um, Broken Earth. Is it the Broken Earth one that's going to TNT? I can't remember. I think first, so, yeah. The first of which of her trilogies. Anyway, N.K. Jemison going to TV. Like and Nettie Okrafor has one, I think. That's... Yeah, those names are not the Kings and Atwoods um, and Gaimans of the world, right? Right. The, in terms of profile. Do those succeed? Do those come back? To, I mean, I guess one thing we'll be see, does the... Um, Angela Flournoy one come back for season two. Mm -hmm. That that will be an interesting one to see. Do, do these things stand on their own? Because Angela Flournoy is a great writer, but ain't no one going to watch TV because it's Angela Flournoy because she has one book out that was a, that was a, a very good literary novel, but probably sold fifty thousand copies. That is not it. That is not American God. So if those things can hold, then we're still not at the bubble, right? I mean, we're still growing. We're still. You're right. We're not at the. Per Parabola, uh, parabolic hockey stick part of the graph, right. which is usually the first sign of a correction. But it could be that they don't get attention. You know, like yeah, the one I think that Zelda Fitzgerald one at Amazon didn't get picked. Oh, up. So right. I don't yeah. know what that and means. There's um, like there's that, that distinction too between like well known titles getting adaptations and then just mm -hmm. writers getting jobs. Like um, yes. Angela Flournoy, the series that she's going to be writing for HBO is not related to the Turner House. It's just right. like she's yes. going to do a thing, um, and I think that will they will have to trade on the quality of that mm -hmm. show they're not trading on her name or familiarity with a book title um, because the show is not the book so you're not getting that same oomph that you get with uh with the handmaid's tale but like i think hbo could roll out and say this is a brand new tv series written by margaret atwood and people would watch a thing just because of her name so there are levels of that yeah. going on as well but i yeah it feels to me like we're still very early actually in what's gonna happen with streaming series now that they've proved there's proof of life here that mm -hmm. they can do adaptations well um folks who hold licensing and copyrights and are in charge of estates like there's just it's a long and rich history and TV works much like the publishing industry is the big hits pay for everything else that loses money. Like Game of Thrones is subsidizing so much of, of HBO's experiments, mm -hmm. right? Like it has the same power law right. um, dynamic of like the top, but, you know, the top 5% mm -hmm. subsidizes the work you could do on all the other 95%. Cent, 95%. Does that hold for TV for these high-end prestige, very expensive to make shows or, you know, or is there only so many like... I was on looking for something to watch on Netflix the other day, and it's a little bit of a, a, a paralysis of choice situation. <laughs> yeah, you can noticing, just spend all night trying to decide what to watch. Well, how many original Netflix series there are? So many, and some of them I haven't heard of. Mm -hmm. Right, like I, you know, I'm on the internet. Like I'm not an ostrich putting my head in the sand. Like I see them, and like some of the stuff I haven't heard of, and to break through the bubble at all becomes increasingly difficult. So, is there a sort of gold rust situation where there there is gold in them, their mountains, but there's only so much gold, and there's a lot of people coming, and at what point does that? you know, do you start to get diminishing returns? So I think that's a fascinating mm -hmm. story to watch. Again, it's only book adjacent insofar as 
their literary adaptations. I don't know, like, are these things good for the book world? Like, we saw Handmaid's Tale get picked up and being sold a lot this year, but I don't think that w- that was before. Oh yeah, the, the Handmaid's TV Tale was a out. bestseller and in, in yeah. the early part of the year, along with 1984, because of the election. Right. Yeah, yeah. They just got so super know. lucky that the um, I think Hulu got super lucky that the Handmaid's Tale was having a cultural moment before yes, they right. made it because they were multiple TV years moment. in development to do that before, right. so they 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 couldn't have um, timed it. As they they literally couldn't time it like right. that. They wanted yeah, to, they... that would just it was coincidence and it, it mm-hmm. worked in their favor. Um, do you want to hear about our next sponsor? Yeah, let's do this another. Week? Sponsor. We'll keep cooking. Um, we are sponsored this week by Book Axe. That's B O O K A X. It's a brand new fiction discovery website where you can find books that you'll love and readers who are like you. BookAxe matches readers to books by more than just genre. Axe recommendations and over time... They learn your dislikes. They put new and better books in their place. So you ax, like, you know, ah, I don't like that recommendation. Mm-hmm. You give it the ax. Um, they don't believe that everyone's opinion is equal either. It matters who says a book is the greatest. So they've scrapped one to five star ratings and they connect you to like-minded readers instead. Um, so somebody who thinks the way that you do about books or who reads and likes similar things, their rating of a book um, gets more Wait um, in the recommendations that Book Axe will send you. You can watch review video, uh, video reviews. You can add your own. You can use um, connect it to your social media channels, and you can even set price alerts for books that are on your TBR. Um, so go to bookaxe.com today to get started and to see the difference. That's bookaxe.com. I'm quibbling with your pick for most delightful um, techno- technological innovation. Oh, you're, Not oh that you I are? don't think this is cool. All right. Well, what is... You know, here, yeah, I well, want to hear yours I mean, before I, you... I mean, they sponsor the show, so it's going to sound bad. But Libby, man, Libby is the mm. most delightful tech innovation of the year. I mean, for me, a literally li- reader life-changing development in the world of books this year. I, as, as those of you who have listened to the show for at least a couple years know... Um, I was no great fan, let's put it this way, of the OverDrive <laughs> uh, mobile experience. But the Libby one for me has been so great and so easy. And actually, Ames and I, my son, were reading um, Brad Meltzer's uh, I Am Martin Luther King. I didn't even think to look at it on Libby, and it's on my color iPad, and it looks great. And it's just so fun and been so easy. Um, it's one of those things that when I have civilians over or talk to civilians, um, and they ask me about what I'm reading, and I tell them about Libby, and a lot of people are picking it up. So it has one, it has one of those things where, you know, it's something that people are interested in books and can use the library, have a decent library system that's using Libby or Overdrive right now, can get behind. Now, it's kind of boring. It's, it's not as interest or, I don't know, it's not as, um, it's not a great headline as opposed to the Audible thing that you put in there, which is kind of <laughs> funny and interesting. But in terms of like a real innovation, like making eBooks this much easier to check out, is a thing that impacts a lot of people. So maybe most meaningful tech innovation for... Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know. Favorite, most meaningful. I'm delighted. I don't know what to well, tell you. Good. I'm using your language, Rebecca. Fine, I mean, I mean I'm, just put, I'm just using what you put here. We don't so, have to be delighted know. by the same things. No, I mean, I am delighted. Just if, <laughs> the, the, the hierarchy of delight is... Um, hierarchy is diff- of delight. ...is a little different from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's a great point. And Libby... We did hear from readers all over the place and listeners of this show that they loved Libby as well. Um, And we're very happy for that because they do sponsor the show. And Libby actually is the sponsor of the 2018 that's read, right. That's read coming harder tomorrow. challenge. So by the time you are listening to this show, the challenge mm-hmm. gets announced on December 15th of every year. By the time you're listening to this, the 2018 read harder challenge will be announced. So if you are a read harder or you want to be, if you're new around these parts, the read harder challenge is 24 tasks over the course of the year designed to help you make your reading life bigger um, and more interesting and more diverse and inclusive. And uh, the tasks are created by one of our OG book riot contributors, Rachel Manuel. It is a great list this year, so just bop over to bookriot.com, look for the 2018 challenge. Um, this is not a paid spot for Libby. We, we mm-hmm. just like them, mm-hmm. uh, and we're excited about the challenge coming out. So um, my most delightful innovation, because I have not yet gotten on the ebook borrowing train from my public mm-hmm. library. I'm just delinquent in that way. Um, so I haven't experienced the Libby joy for myself, is the Audible romance program um, that lets readers skip, or listeners in this case, skip to the good parts 
Awards. Um, and we talked about it not too long ago, so I won't give too many details, but Audible has a new romance service that lets you sort uh, romance audiobooks according to several variables. And then when you skip to the good parts, it's not just the steamy parts, but you can skip to sort of the, there's 10 different categories of like high moments in the plot. Um, if you just want to get, you know, the first meeting, the flirty banter, the first kiss, and then the trouble in paradise, sort of these like major moments in the arc of a romance novel, you can mm -hmm. skip directly to those and, you know, bypass some of the exposition if you want to. I think that's fun and creative. I love that they called it the good parts. Like <laughs> I just was delighted by that branding. It's the kind of thing that I wish that I could have come up with um, or worked on. So that's my most delightful tech innovation. But we don't we don't have to fight. I'm, I'm going to do the same move I did when we talked about the first time, which I think the the story here is kind of buried. The lead is buried because Audible is actually trying to figure out this all you can eat romance subscription mm -hmm. for audiobooks, which that's a torpedo we have seen sink other <laughs> literally subscription yeah. service ships. Yeah, mm -hmm. like Oyster and Scribd mm -hmm. had to do a whole different thing around romance, and um, because romance readers they're they're a different uh, breed of horse when it comes to their consumption patterns of romance titles specifically. Um, they, I mean, and the, the breed of horse there is one that reads a lot of romance and a lot of them quickly. And so traditional metrics for, I'd say even a reader, like, like even a power reader like myself, I don't read at the velocity of a title velocity as a romance reader does. So you can't really, you can't really invite them to your party for all you can read if, if you're solving your equation for me. And if, so if too many romance readers come on board, they screw up your business model. Mm -hmm. And so Audible's trying something else. Um, I don't know if it's going well. I'd be interested to hear if any of y'all out there have tried it or know people have tried it. I know we do have um, quite a few romance listeners that uh, deign to listen to us babble about stuff. Podcast at bookriot.com. Love to hear your thoughts about that as well. Um, now, now we're really getting into potpourri. We are. And it's hard to connect any of these particular things. Do we want to do turkeys for a little bit and then save um, some other? Yeah, let's talk turkeys for a minute. Well, I think the like the big <sighs> turkey of the year because it was this was like the zombie story that just would not go away. Every time we thought that it was yes, over, right. um, something weirder and weirder happened. Like the the turkeyest of the turkeys is all that stuff that happened with he who shall not be named, who like lost his book mm -hmm. deal and then sued Simon and Schuster and then he self published right. and then he lied about the sales numbers and then unsurprisingly. Surprisingly, his book was not a bestseller. Like we talked about that a million times. We're glad that story is over. Totally a turkey, but more in the realm of like. But he was a he was he, he was a pre cooked turkey. Yeah, like came to the book right. world as a turkey. Right, like some some uniquely publishing yeah. turkeys. It just I think... wandered into our barnyard. <laughs> a wild turkey that just wandered through for a while. I'm glad he's gone. Yeah, is this some, how turkeys uh, work? I don't, I don't know. I don't but some uh, native turkeys to publishing are uh, yes, in, or emerging in, turkeys, yes. you know, reverse turkeys, swans into turkeys. <laughs> Were the the ongoing banana pants story of Lonnie Sarum, who yeah. gamed the New York Times bestseller list for her young adult novel Handbook for Mortals, and she you know placed a bunch she or had she or her lackeys, may, possibly someone from the band In Sync, and also maybe Blues Traveler was involved, like or I've, some third party stealth yeah, yeah. bestseller Ordering, gaming placing, company. Placing orders for quantities no. of the books that were enough to like from individual stores to help the book get on bestseller list, but not enough to count as a bulk order because those get reported mm -hmm. differently. Um, like very careful gaming of the bestseller list, and then insistence while admitting that she did these things, the insistence that she hadn't done anything wrong. Like, and it kind of seemed like. Maybe she really did believe this, that like she, mm -hmm. she seemed pretty convinced um, that she was just doing what it took to get on the bestseller list and that she needed to get on the bestseller list so that she could get a movie deal for this book. And like, this is just what you have to do. So I did it. Right. Um, she, she obeyed the letter, not spirit of the law. Right. Like, you know, in those take a penny, leave a penny, she'd be the one that just takes a penny every time. It says take a penny. Right. And every time she takes a penny. <laughs> okay, technically, you're not going to jail. But that's not what this. That's not. That, that's not yeah. what this is for. Yeah, and it right? like, like even okay, this story went on and on through the Ugh. summer and was just yep. so weird. And it got weirder and weirder. And then just like last week, I think, um, it came out that she has been 
that Lonnie Sarum uh, like accused Angie Thomas, the author of The Hate You Give, mm-hmm. of of trying to be the one to like knock her off the New York Times bestseller list, list because Angie Thomas just had to have that number one spot for herself. Which like let me tell you, Angie Thomas did not have any trouble securing the oh. number one spot with The Hate Angie You Give. Angie Thomas too busy on her set visits to the <laughs> film adaptations of her movie. Well, I hate to tell you, but the, I like Lonnie Sarum and the Handbook for Mortals. Like that, it it has to be like in just the world of publishing. I think that has to be the turkey of the year. I think so. I mean, the, the, they're different breeds of turkey, I guess, because <laughs> I'm just making up different. But like, so we teased, well, we didn't really tease it. We just didn't want to get into it last mm-hmm. week when we were mm-hmm. finishing up our, is that um, word came down last week that Lauren Stein, the the uh, editor-in-chief of the Paris Review, it's a little unclear. The reported version was that he stepped down. Now, there's different ways of being stepping down, right? Is someone pushing you onto that first step or whatever? But basically, um, a series of allegations of... And you and I were talking before the show quite about this because it's, it's nuanced and a little bit different. Some, it's, he's not a Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein figure. Not that I'm trying to apologize for him. Please don't hear that. But it's not... He's not raping people. He's not masturbating in front of them into plants. But he was like, I think we said he's he was Roger Sterling. Mm-hmm. It, up, it sounded like at the Paris Review, which is not great. You can't do this. Yeah, um, you cannot do that. And he's pretty powerful in the world of, yes. of oh, letters. Yes. That's a powerful yeah. and important um, opinion. So he's stepping down, scrolling back, you know, before the Weinstein news broke, mm-hmm. we also, I ha- I remember talking in the agenda about Bill O'Reilly's publisher. Um, right. Like he lost his book deal or his like numerous book deals or his contract even, I think, um, because mm-hmm. of uh, sexual assault allegations. Um, so right. it, it seems to me like we're just starting to see this. It's the big, powerful industries first and sort of some of the mm-hmm. big, powerful men in publishing are, um, are going to be headed this way uh, too. I saw just yesterday, I think, um, Ryan Lizza or Litza, I'm not sure how you pronounce it at the New Yorker. I think it's Lizza, yeah, Lizza, at the New Yorker. Um, had to step down over an inappropriate relationship with a coworker. Uh, and that is, yeah, of course. Garrison Keillor dropped oh, by Minnesota Public Radio. Um, again, being an author is only one of his gigs, but is he mm-hmm. in the in the 80s, he sold a lot of books, a lot of Lake Wobegons, um, made it on their way onto Midwestern nightstands. Yeah. Because there was on like every parent of every friend that I had was reading. Right. Um, <laughs> yep. Lake Wobegon uh, at some point. So again, this is, it's kind of like the turkey wandering into your yard insofar as this isn't a publishing story. This is a, this is an American But these story. turkeys are in every yard. Yeah. They were just, you know, discovering that that swan is actually a turkey, but my poultry metaphors are really <laughs> falling down here. Um, yeah, we, but the, I think that, but Lauren Stein, I guess is, and, and since that story broke, it's a name that was known, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other names that are known that are beyond the pale of what we can say here. This shit ain't over. I'm about to bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over, and there's going to be more. Um, yeah. I, I don't know even what the... I, I guess I hope that it happens quickly so that we can start the the fixing of the things. I don't know what I hope... Yeah, I, I guess that's an interesting question. I'd like to hear your response, or not your mm. thoughts on, like, what what is the best case for how this you know, use publishing as our particular um, uh, road to hoe, but like, is this a clearing house? Is this a, you know, truth and reconciliation situation? Like, what are we hoping for in, in this in this moment in publishing? Oh, I mean, I think at this moment in publishing several things, like in the within the industry, like if I could have it my way, we mm-hmm. would just like wake up one morning and all of the men in powerful positions would have been like raptured, but to an unpleasant place. You saw my tweet about this, right? No. The leftovers, but for men in media. No. <laughs> that's really funny, Jeff. We yeah. that's had the like, same thought about that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. Yeah, but that's kind of what I was thinking is um, right. if, they, if they were all just, you know, removed from their places of power mm-hmm. and revealed to be what they are all at once, um, that would be terrific and made to atone for, you know, to acknowledge and to atone for, uh, for all of these wrongs. And, you know, for women who didn't get, you know, there's been a tweet going viral about, uh, you know, those actresses that you loved in the mid nineties and then they fell off the face of the earth and you wonder where they went Well, they probably refused to sleep with Harvey Weinstein. Like what kind of books did we not get because women 
weren't nice to some of these men in powerful mm-hmm. positions in publishing or because they refused to sleep with them or because they told on them when they did something inappropriate. Like I, we have not really started to hear those stories yet. And like um, you and I, and maybe many of the industry people listening to this show can think of at least like one very powerful person at one important imprint um, mm-hmm. that everyone is just kind of waiting for who's going to be the first one to say the thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, that will begin to happen, I think, uh, in the new year. But then there are the, the la- layers of like, best. Who are the other best-selling authors? Like, I am just holding my breath for the day that it that the news uh. breaks that some guy who has written a book that I love that I thought was a good man is going to be like it'll be his turn. I'm waiting for that round of it and that like that's the real as a reader not as a publishing professional as a reader like that's the real reckoning is what do you do with mm-hmm. art that has been meaningful to you that it turns the, out is the Kevin Spacey problem right. really I think is the best example for me in so far as I didn't have a sense of anything about his personality I knew there was like long standing rumors or he was openly quietly gay or something but like I don't care about that and so you know like he was in The Usual Suspects. He was in Seven. He's in, you know, a, mm-hmm. One Night of Garden of Good and Evil, like a lot of stuff that I like. And, and that's a, that's going to be the situation. Right? I, you like, know, and what I do you think, do with that? Like, I, I, don't, a, I can't watch it myself. Yeah. You that's know, I think I, it's I a little it. simpler with books than it is with television because, like, because Kevin Spacey's not the only one in The Usual Suspects, you know, and right. he's not the only one in House of Cards. No. I love Robin Wright. Um, the early mm-hmm. seasons of that show were really interesting and well-written. Like, I, I have a harder time with it. Or, like, you know... I'm not I'm not going to Woody Allen movies, but uh, mm-hmm. what about like ense- right, ensemble shows that aren't just about the one person who did something bad? Like, I don't know how you thread that needle. I think everybody has a different answer to it. But yeah. I think books are a little more straightforward because the book is produced by the one person typically. Right. Um, so if Kevin Spacey had been writing a best-selling series of books, I would be off the Kevin Spacey book wagon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um God forbid that it's... You Don't know, say it. I'm not going to say it, but you know what I'm thinking. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, that's, it's a little clearer... It's a little clearer cut. But, like, that's going to happen. I'm just ready for it. I, I, that, yeah. Like, it will occur that we, as readers, we're going to have our turn being heartbroken that men who produced books that we've loved turn out to be gross and terrible. Yeah. Um, and what do you, what do we do with that information um, as readers is something we're all going to muddle through. I think like we've done it in individual cases, you know, um, the Orson Scott card stuff is pretty widely talked about. Like, yeah. um, and so a few years ago people were like, Oh wow. He has said some things that seem really homophobic. Um, mm. What do I do with the fact that I love Ender's game? Right. And everybody answers that for themselves differently, but we're going to have a lot more opportunities to answer it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem. We talked about this when, um, I don't know, when we first started thinking on the show, at least about, you know, in the post, in immediate after a math of the initial Weinstein reporting, you know, of course there's going to be people in publishing and how it's going to happen. But then we connected the dots to um, – the Vetus counts mm-hmm. um, and the publisher's weekly salary stuff about the structural problems. So right. the problem with even our dream scenario of like the, the leftovers is that the structures are still in place, right? It's kind of like if you've got a, if you've got a rodent infestation and you set a bunch of traps and you catch six rodents, have you solved your rodent problem? Probably not. Right, because they're getting in from somewhere else. You got to plug the holes. Yeah, you know. Um, So the next step is going to be figuring out how to plug the holes. And much like with the diversity problems and tasks that publishing has acknowledged, um, it takes a long time. It takes not just like publishing one book or getting rid of one bad dude. It's a systemic problem that won't be fixed, even if there were this sort of rapturous and okay, we're going to start from a clean slate except that the thing that got our slate dirty is still wandering around. Right. Like I've, I've said, and I I said it initially joking, but the more I think about it, the more I'm totally in favor of it, that every position that is vacated by a man in power should be filled by a Mm woman. Um, Like it feels less and less safe to read books by men because am I going to like wake up tomorrow and find out (laughs) that they're they're terrible? That's been the story with entertainment so far. Um, And that's, I think that would be one way to, plug the holes. And I hope mm-hmm. that um, publishers are considering this, that it isn't just that these are individual men making very bad decisions about how to use their power, but those men are in those positions in the first place because of systems right. and structures that allow publishing's ranks to be filled with women, but the upper 
echelons to be heavily dominated by men. And you mm. change that system by putting women in the top layers of things. So if a if the head of an imprint has to go, his spot should be filled by a woman because there is there is a qualified one there somewhere, you know, and uh, probably many of them. Um, yeah. I, I'm I would let's do that. Let's I would bang the gavel on that policy today. <laughs> like men, just no promotions for men for like the next year. That would be fine with me. <laughs> I do wonder, especially in the last 20 years or so of literary publishing, because that's the one that I know best, if, again, things are bad and should be fixed. But compare it to, say, Hollywood, where so many of the decision makers and people holding purse strings were were and are men, where in publishing there are women up the editorial ranks Mm -hmm. up until kind of the highest levels, usually. And I wonder if that's provided a little bit more... Cover is the wrong yeah. word. I mean, I wonder if it's not quite as gatekeepery a little, like, about padding. women. like padding, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just structurally, mm-hmm. the, the, the number of women in, in middle to upper middle posi- decision-making in publishing is pretty strong. And that's one thing we've talked about when we always see those top-level managers, like the top-level executives are men, but then everyone below them is basically women, <laughs> right. right? Well, that does provide some, I think, I'm not even sure, cushion or mitigating effect of the Harvey Weinstein situation where you have these people that make all the decisions and then their underlings make all the decisions to, to, to mm-hmm. appease that guy. I, mean, I could be wrong well, about that. It's just a thought. Yeah. You know, we were talking last week, I think just offline about how messed up it is. I think you said this, that we even know mm. the phrase, the casting couch. It's so that, like, screwed up. That, like this is up. a thing yeah. that we all just know exists and we have known it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, I mean, I don't know of a phrase that's the publishing equivalent of that and probably for the reasons that you're talking about that mm. that there are women involved in parts of the chain a lot of agents are women many editors these days are women and so like the i think that my, if i had to guess that i would guess that the majority of the gross stuff that we find out about happening in publishing is going to be happening between two people who like work at the same publishing house. Um, you know, between a powerful person and someone in a less powerful position than between writers and editors or writers Mm -hmm. and publishers. But that stuff we're going to hear about too. That certainly happens. Um, I just think Mm -hmm. that the structures, there are more women up the chain sort of through the process of trying to get a book published that I think it does create some cover or some cushion or some protection there um, for it to not happen as much as it happens uh, in, in television. Uh, yeah, or and I could just be wrong. That yeah, that's the vectors true. just happen in a slightly different way, you know, maybe because yeah. we have agents involved. Maybe that becomes a locus of power and leverage and misbe you know, I'm just mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know anything. I'm not saying that's true. <laughs> but just, you know, be don't read into what, what what I'm not saying into what I am saying, but it could it could be that it's just somewhere else. Yeah. Along along the route. Um, um, but anyway. Yeah, speaking of continuing uh, turkey. turkeys and men in places that they shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, this is like a, a lesser turkey, but one that I'm not done being angry about, is that the New York Times book review finally decided to cover romance. And when they did it, they had um, Robert Gottlieb, who is 87 years old, a well-known literary critic, but admittedly a, a, a reader who is unfamiliar with the world of romance, do a like state of romance piece that involved him reading and then commenting on a bunch of romance novels in ways that ranged from weird to dismissive to kind of gross and all of it was really tone deaf um mm-hmm. his was his writing was really tone deaf it was a tone deaf choice on the part of the editors of the New York Times to to do this i've heard, i've gotten a couple emails from folks who were like Y'all should just be grateful that the New York Times covered romance at all. And I got to say, I think they would have been better off to continue not covering romance than to cover romance in this way. This does no one any favors. This doesn't serve folks who love romance. It doesn't serve the existing romance community. It also does absolutely nothing to encourage a reader um, who has never tried romance to be interested in trying it, which is not what a book review is intended to do. I'm not saying that Robert Gottlieb's job was to make non-romance readers interested in romance, but I can't identify the reader that this piece serves other than someone somebody who wants to be smug. Yeah, somebody who wants to be smug about having all all of their snobby suspicions about romance mm. confirmed. Um, it, it, this was not a service to romance readers. It was not a service to 
making any kind of reader, I think, um, other than the snobby ones, feel good about the choice that the New York Times book review had made. It's like, Mm -hmm. uh, we're finally going to talk about race. And then you have a white guy write a piece about black culture. Like, this is, you know just this a really tone deaf decision no one came out looking great no. with this one even the snobby happy readers don't end up looking it's not a good look right uh you know oh, yeah no. this what I, the thing i unsubstantially thought is true is true according um, to an 87 year old to someone who doesn't really right. know i mean again you can write negative things you there's there's maybe a version of this story that's interesting from gottlieb's perspective i don't think i would run it anyway but this wasn't it mm-hmm. whatever whatever they were trying to do was a failure. Um, it's you know, it, it, it's hard not to, it's hard to be in a, in a situation where you don't want to say they tried something and didn't work. You know, you, failure is okay. Sure. Um, but there were some assumptions and some decisions made here that felt in bad faith is maybe too strong, but they weren't thoughtful, um, mm-hmm. about what they were trying to do with this. Um, I'd love to see him take a different crack and learn from it. The responses that we talked about on the show that they gave to the feedback don't give me great hope yeah. that they're going to try something else. Um, but it's it's too bad. It's too bad this happened. Uh, it was a real bummer. In the world of book coverage, the low point of the year, mm-hmm. I would say. I agree. Um, from what I saw. Um, low points of the year in library land. I don't know. I mean, we can do a low and a high for libraries. So our... our aggregate turkey of the year is the university of new hampshire mm-hmm. um for it's hard to say misappropriating because they again it's kind of like the they this, the, it's tone the, deaf, law, but yeah. not the spirit of law they they can do what they want with um i want to get the guy's name right before i uh, anyway uh university of new hampshire got a large bequest from one of their longtime employees who worked in the library robert morin spent a robert, robert morin um he left them four million dollars and basically $1 million of that went to the video scoreboard um, for the University of New Hampshire football stadium. And I think this is one of those things where they kind of had a Streisand effect here where they didn't want it covered, and then they did want it covered, and then when they saw how it was getting covered, they tried to cover it, and then it made it worse. <laughs> yeah, um, it ended up on Deadspin because we were like, whoa, yeah. this is a tiny book story that now is on yeah. sort of mainstream media. Right. Um, and it's it's a real bummer. And I think... You know, the, the University of New Hampshire, given the, the bequest and the language around it, were well within their legal rights to do it. Um, but I also think they also took a penny and didn't leave a penny <laughs> to, to yeah. extend that particular metaphor here. I, I don't think they served that well. I don't think they served the optics well. And if I'm going to be political or not political, but if, if I'm going to take a stand, I'm like, do you, I think they don't serve the school well by spending a million dollars on the football school board rather than pumping into libraries or scholarships or whatever else that could be to 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 send that. So that was the gift that kept giving us turkey. Yeah, it, it did. I had several um, different times my like about. headline for that was when the chickens come home to roost. So we've gone mm. from turkeys to chickens and we're I don't know, barnyard fowl, but maybe we should hear our last sponsor of the of the week. Oh yeah, let's do our last sponsor. Let me, let me come back up. So all right, here here's the story. Middle Earth for middle graders. I'm jumping down on their talking points because I think that's one's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's so a I'm good slug. Uh, J.R. Tolkien's famed maxim, even the smallest person can change the course of the future, resonates with young readers, and Tolkien influences rever- reverberate throughout Podkin One Ear by Kiernan Larwood. You don't have to be brave or strong or powerful to do incredible things. This is Watership Down meets Redwall mm. in a new fantasy series of good versus evil starring three young rabbit siblings. Prove that anyone, even little rabbits, can achieve great things. Brilliant storytelling combined with spine-tingling action in this first book in the Longborough series. Cute. That's Podkin One Ear, hyphen, O-N-E, in case you don't want to spell one, and then hyphen, E-A-R, in case you don't want to spell ear, by <laughs> Kiernan Larwood, L-A-R-W-O-O-D. That's Middle Earth for middle graders. That's pretty good. Yeah, this sounds like pretty a good, good. follow-up to to um Zootopia where the little yes. the little rabbit becomes a police officer like mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. very cute. Okay, so we go to our biggest disagreement of the year. Let's <laughs> get that out of the way. Yes, let's. 
Um, this is the one where Rebecca was wrong about well, Terry Pratchett. Uh, 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 I'm this is one time. of our longest running philosophical disagreements. Yes. Yeah. So basically, is Terry Pratchett, um, when he passed away in his will, it was uh, decreed, asked for, determined. What I don't even know what language it was used. Um, ordered, really. I guess at this point it's a court order if it's mm-hmm. in his will. Um, that his unpublished works be destroyed by a steamroller, which is a wonderful visual. I agree, wonderful theatricality. You, you'd expect nothing less than Sir Terry Pratchett. One of the more, I mean, creative is almost an underselling of Terry Pratchett's imaginative worlds. Um, but anyway, so a theatrical, absurd, and poignant all at the same time, which wouldn't, do, wouldn't be a bad as a, a summary of, of Pratchett's work. Um, and our disagreement is, I hate this. I know, I know you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this. It makes me upset. I don't like it. And I'm not kidding about it. Like, I mean, no, I'm not angry I know you, but you like, you hate it. I hate it. The, 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 the academic in me, the scholar in me, the, the reporter in me, the, the literary his, history buff in me hates this with the passion of a thousand Discworld sons. Um, and not just about Terry Pratchett. In general. No, just all of it. Yeah, in general. Just in general. Just you are team. Yeah. Give us everything. Team save. Team save. Or don't even give it to us. Just save it. You know, just don't do this. Anything else after that is, is gravy, but don't do this. Don't get rid of it. Don't destroy it. Um, Wait, so you would be cool if these were just like locked in a room, but no one could ever look at them? Well, the thing about forever is it's long. <laughs> right? I mean, Sure. For now, then what purpose does it serve if they're just existing well, but no one can see them? Well, you can keep open the possibility that something changes. You can go back on Terry it, Pratchett, right? like comes back from the dead and is like, "Never mind." No, I mean, who knows, right? Who kn- <laughs> maybe maybe what if we discover in a, in a year that he had that this letter uh, that was discovered in his stuff says, "You know that that shit about um, the steamroller that was a joke. Don't really do that." It's possible. What if Harper Mark Lee's Twain, attorney Twain is like, actually, every, I was friends with Terry Pratchett and he's M- fine Mark, with it. Mark Twain has letters in every attic in North America. We're learning all sorts <laughs> of stuff. You know, you, but you see what I'm getting at. Like, okay, the, the, this is irreversible. It's, it's like the death penalty for books. Like, you can't go back. We can't walk back a death penalty. Life in prison, things can change. They get exonerated. All sorts of stuff happens. It's an extreme example, but like, there's a finality to this that there's not the finality of just, okay, we're, we're not going to destroy it, but we're not publishing it either. Or, and that's not even a binary. You could have it, um, there's a lot of papers and a lot of um, uh, archives that aren't published, but you can go read the letters of basically any author you want, the manuscript draft of Truman Capote stuff that's not published. There's different ways of things being out in the universe. So th- that's my point. It's like, I don't think it's a, we have to publish these as the last novel of Terry Pratchett and HarperCollins is this terrible thing where they don't include a foreword, not that they would ever do this, except that they have, um, about what this book is or it isn't. But like, there's, there's, there's a value to these things that extend beyond that them showing up on the shelves. And I understand the other point of view. I understand the point of like honoring the author's wishes totally get that but i just i, I think you're just gonna general, like talk faster like and faster so that i don't tell you you're wrong <laughs> well i'm not wrong you could say whatever you want i'm not wrong about it though <laughs> it makes me sad when authors do this that they mm-hmm. don't want the material to be available to readers but i'm firmly like respect people's dying wishes so i'll be sad about it I would like I will I will be sad in the future if it turns out that there's a Toni Morrison novel that she is having destroyed upon her death that we never get to read. Um, but I'm I just feel better about honoring the thing that people want. And in Terry Pratchett's case, I think a steamroller is a pretty excellent choice. Again, the theatricality, wonderful. <laughs> you know, the the symbolism, magnificent. The reality, garbage. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up on yeah. a high note. Probably the big celebrity book deal that mm-hmm. um, most. Dis- is this a high note? This is just a note. I mean, do you think it's a? High- oh, wait. I'm sorry. We might be talking about different things. I'm ta- I think we're talking about different things. Yes, um, right. I was skipping past. Well, there's a celebrity book deal team up that we were mm-hmm. going to mention. That just most surprising team up where um, it was announced that Bill Clinton and James Patterson are going to be working on a novel together. Um, I have now lost the tab that has that story in it, but that's a thing. <laughs> that will be happening and it was announced I think first on Twitter um, and will be I will be watching with great interest to see how that comes out I mainly just like the idea of Bill Clinton and James Patterson like sitting around together have you ever read a James Patterson novel I haven't I don't even know what to I mean I kind of feel uh, like know, I know what to expect but that might not be fair I read Along Came a Spider like in high school okay. or college one of those I saw the movie yes I did read I either read Along Came a Spider or Kiss the Girls mm. like years ago mm-hmm. um 
but I haven't gone back to the well. Okay. But Just I'll curious. be yeah, yeah, I'll be interested in seeing what happens with Bill Clinton and James Patterson. It could be zany. Um, Bill Clinton has some whimsy. Um, the book deal, celebrity book deal that I think yeah. m- most deserved of the big celebrity book deals that we've heard about lately, and I think we'll both be um, watching this with excitement and great interest. Colin Kaepernick um, got mm-hmm. a $1 million deal from One World Books, which is a random house imprint run by Chris Jackson. Uh, that does a lot of really interesting things. Um, and so he will be writing a memoir um, about presumably uh, his activism and his career and the very interesting turn uh, that the last year or so uh, has taken for him in that mm-hmm. transition from professional football player into activist. And I will be watching that as I said, with great interest. So um, we didn't hear a lot about big celebrity book deals this year um, that I can recall, but that's mm. one that I'm, um, that I think we got a shout out as a highlight. You mean besides Pillars of the Garth? Oh, <laughs> Pillars of the Garth. Did I tell you I actually put that on my Christmas list? I saw it in Target the other day and I was like, oh my God, it's so, it's like, it's, it's like a monument. It's not even a book. It's They're it's, running commercials for it. And Bob, like a commercial, no, yeah, really? a commercial came on the other day and Bob was like, what is that? And I was like, it's a five part Garth Brooks memoir and it comes with CDs in it. And I maybe put it on my Christmas list. Oh my God. You know, speaking of um, big book deals and Bill Clinton, you know, we didn't talk about, and I don't even know where to put this in, in the year. What happened? That was a big book moment. It like, was I don't even a big know book what, moment. What superlative we get it, there was a lot of run-up to it. There was a lot of early hype. Um, there was a lot of like preemptive finger-pointing about why she shouldn't be doing this that turned out to be garbage when people actually got the mm-hmm. thing. Um, she's been on the Hillary Clinton sort of like, I mean, a tour, but I think a lot of people have found that tour therapeutic right, oh, yes. to see her and it's talk like to her. It's like the Hillary hear, Clinton catharsis moment. Yeah, right. Like, um, let, let's regroup a little bit there. Um, it's sold fantastically well. I mean, that's the other part mm-hmm. of it that, that we, we've talked about. But I'm not sure what superlative we give, would give to it. But I think if you were going to pick a, a book from the year to represent the year, you could do worse than what happened. Oh, right? yeah. I think that's oh. a a strong pick for uh, Yeah, the, I just have a hard time thinking of anything the else. Book I guess of the, the hate moment, you give yeah. I would put up there. Mm-hmm. Um, all connected though, to what's happening yeah, in the all, world right now. Yeah, all connected. Though, though, I mean, for for whatever it's worth, and I think you know, Trump has just been such a titanic, you know, Im- has such an impact on popular culture and popular discourse that the talk about police violence against especially black people that the hate you gave came out of and mm-hmm. represents in Chronicles has not been in the forefront as much as just top level just the federal and political the, like, daily stuff, garbage right? fire right yeah so in a way it, 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 it you know as books are they tend to trail a little bit politics and in, in the moment and, and for good or for ill some of it can be more thoughtful because it's not occurrent but then it can feel less timely because it's not coming at that particular moment um, I don't think I think it's just a different impact not a mm-hmm. lesser one but in terms of feeling current I guess what happened yeah you know it just was ready to go and the turnaround I mean the logistics also you have to say mm-hmm. of getting that mm-hmm. book because it came out in June is that right I don't even it, remember it, it came out in September boy this has been a long year oh my <laughs> god that was September <laughs> yeah oh my god no that's can't be right <laughs> That book came out in 2014. I know. It's been a hell of a year. That's a good... uh, I I have a lot more gray hairs than I did at the beginning of this year. You probably have fewer hairs. You know, at this point, I just have skull (laughs) showing. But 2017, it was a year. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the year in books. Uh, Next next week, we're recording tomorrow, but it'll come out next week. We're going to do our... Our favorite things of the year, some of which are books. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk TV, movies, um, possibly USB coffee warmers. I oh, just maybe you're just there. thinking about that. I don't know. I'm just looking at it. I love lamp. Um, <laughs> that'll be our show next week. Brick killed so, a guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, in the meantime, shoot us a podcast. A pod, uh, shoot, us, shoot us a podcast. <laughs> if you want to record a podcast and send it to us, uh, that would be I'll great. probably read it in three to four months. Uh, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. We, we were asking people their favorite adaptation of the year yep. is the time stuff we want to hear. You can find show notes to this and all episodes of the Book Riot podcast at pod, uh, excuse me, bookriot.com slash listen. Thanks to our sponsors this week. Um, Reckless, The Petrified Flesh, uh, Book Axe, and Podkin One Year. 
by Kiernan Larwood and for sponsoring the show. Go to bookriot.com slash bookriot top 20 to enter to win 20 of our favorite books of 2017. Talk to you next week. Have a good one. 